to get up in the dark again. When that alarm went off at 5 o'clock, I thought my body said, no! I'm glad you said yes, and you got here. If you fall asleep uh, during, the, during the presentation here, just fall forwards uh, and uh, try not to make a big mess out of it, and uh, we'll wake you up at the end, and that'll be just fine. Uh, we welcome those of you who are here for the first time in Amen Bible Study. We're uh, starting our 12th year, and I'm afraid some of you may be a little disappointed in me. We picked a really easy book this time, you know. Last time it was a minor prophets, and the time before that, Revelation. And uh, now we're going to do something just so easy, you know, the gospel according to Mark. How easy can it be? What we're going to see when we study Mark is, yeah, it's easy on one level, but it's kind of like reading a Mark Twain novel. You know, you can get it at several different levels, depending upon what you're seeing there. And there's some depths and mysteries in Mark's gospel that are really profound and that we're going to enjoy studying together. And uh, I trust will change your life. Uh, it's good to be together on Thursday morning and get a great breakfast like this one. And by the way, let's give a hand to all those who fixed our breakfast this morning. <laughs> those folks fixed us a great breakfast. We're, we'll be going back to bagels and bananas next week, I guess, which is fine. But you come on in and get your bagels and banana and uh, sit down with your friends, and then we'll study the Bible together. Uh, we have many different perspectives in this room. A minority of you are from Second Presbyterian Church, some of you from other churches, and some of you from no church at all. And that's the, exactly the way we like it. Uh, the more we can mix it up, uh, different backgrounds, different perspectives, uh, the more we enjoy it. And we welcome you here and are glad to have you. Bring your friends. You can see we've got plenty of places to put them. <laughs> now, what happens is uh, after you hear one amen, about a half of you will fall off, you know. Uh, and there'll, there'll be room, so don't worry about it. We'll thin it out before it's all over. Uh, listen, this morning, uh, it was mentioned to us about the small groups, and I just want to encourage you in that. Some of you, how many of you uh, met in small groups last year? Let's see your hands. Uh, okay, a number of you did. And the reports we got back from you all was it was really helpful. And we'd like to encourage you to do that again. And I think we handed out small group discussion questions at the tables. And uh, here, here's what you can do. You can either... After you've met, the guys at your table can say, hey, let's just stay a few minutes and talk it through. Uh, or you can meet some other time in the morning or some other place or some other time during the week. You don't have to use those discussion questions. You can use some other ones. But I'll give you some that might relate to the things we talked about on Thursday morning. The advantage of a small group is you, you get a chance to say what you think. And uh, that's really important. It's a lot more important what you think than what I think. Uh, really. So... You need to communicate with one another what you all are thinking and interact with each other on it. And that's the way you take the lessons of the, of the scriptures for the day and really get it worked into your life. So I would encourage you to think about that. If you'd like to be, if you'd like to have some help in being put into a small group, uh, in a couple of weeks, Don Riley will be back from wherever he is, Vladivostok, I think he is, with some guys on a mission trip. He'll be back and be glad to help us get organized and, and encourage us in those small groups. So think about that. Then also, uh, for your wives or for your administrative assistants or workmates or whatever, neighbors who are women uh, who would like to study the same thing with us, uh, I've noticed a couple of times that women have tried to come to our lesson, they get met at the door and then they get sent away. So <laughs> I don't know. I think, I think we're afraid of them in here, actually. Uh, but we have Bible studies. They're studying the same thing on Wednesday mornings, and Susan Nash is teaching it, and they meet right across the hall. Uh, on Wednesday morning at 6.30. So if you want to invite the women, I believe there are little bookmarks on your tables 
uh, that you could give to them and invite them to that. Well, guys, we're studying a very important book of the Bible. It's uh, one of the oldest ones in the New Testament. It's called the Gospel According to Mark, and you can turn in your Bibles to page 1600. And if you don't have a, a Spirit of the Reformation study Bible, you might want to get one because when I turn to various passages in the Bible, I'll give you the page number. Some of you really need that, you know what I mean? You know, Taylor doesn't even know if the Psalms is in the New Testament or the Old Testament. You have to, you have to give him a page number on that. So uh, also you'll notice that uh, on the schedule for studying uh, or preparing for each one of our lessons, I make reference to some of the sidebars, theological sidebars, and some of, of chapters in the Confession of Faith uh, in the study Bible that you might want to read uh, along with our lesson. And so if you have a, this study Bible, uh, you can go along with us. If you don't have one today, I don't know where you get them, I suppose back there or in the bookmark, but they're around. And I think they cost maybe 30 bucks, 25 bucks. Huh? $25. Oh, that's a good deal. I think they retail for almost 40 So uh, get your Spirit of the Reformation study Bible. Uh, some of you are thinking, what if it retails for 40 I could make a profit on that. <laughs> it's all right. Let's look at uh, Mark chapter 1. Uh, verses 1 through 13. Let's read the text and then we'll get started on our study for the day. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert. And he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. Okay. We uh, call this Mark's Gospel. And uh, the reason we do is that we believe that Mark wrote it. But you'll notice that it doesn't say in the text that Mark wrote it. So the question ought to come up, why do we think the author uh, is a man named Mark? Well, his name is actually John Mark. And uh, the reason we think so, if you turn back one page in your study Bible into the introduction, these are helpful little introductions to each book of the Bible. Under uh, This is on page 1598. Under the uh, paragraph author, or the section on author, you'll see the second paragraph says, external considerations point to Mark as the author of the gospel that traditionally bears his name. First, the title according to Mark, 
appears in all the ancient canonical lists and many ancient manuscripts. And we're going back to the second century there. Although this title is not original to the work, it is thought to have been added very early in the history of the textual tradition. And then secondly, church fathers such as Papias and Justin Martyr and Irenaeus and Clement of Alexandria affirm his authorship of the second gospel. So you're going back to Papias. By the way, the, the Papias' original uh, writing on this is not, a, not uh, available to us except through Eusebius, a fourth century church historian. But it's very reliable. Papias was living in, in the early second century, and he says that Mark wrote the gospel, and he says that he was Peter's interpreter. And furthermore, Irenaeus later on in the century says that Mark wrote this to the church in Italy, in Rome in particular. So very early on in the church, uh, from folks who were just one generation away from the apostles themselves, they were saying this was written by Mark. Now, let's, let's think for a minute, who was John Mark? Well, if you look at the book of Acts in chapter 12, you remember that when Peter was imprisoned, he was let out of prison, went to a home, knocked on the door. And remember, Rhoda comes to the door and she's so shocked, she closes the door and she doesn't let him in. And Peter's still sitting out there. She thinks it's a ghost because they can't believe that Peter got liberated from prison. But God led him out of prison and opened the way for him. Well, that was the home of John Mark's mother, Mary. Later on in Acts, you find that on Paul's second missionary journey, he and Barnabas are going to go back to the churches that they visited on the first journey, and they say, uh, you know, let's, let's take John Mark with us. You remember that Paul says, no, I don't want to, because John Mark went with us on the first journey and left us in Pamphylia and came back to Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, it, if you'd been on that first missionary journey, you'd know why Paul was saying that. Paul got beaten up, stoned, left for dead. This is dangerous business, preaching Christ out in, that, uh, in Turkey where he was. And so he's going back to those same places. And if you're going out to there to preach, you've got to have somebody cover your back. And John Mark left before the hard stuff began. And so Paul doesn't want to take John Mark. He seems unreliable. Problem was, John Mark is Barnabas's first cousin. And Barnabas, you remember, is the encourager among all those early brothers. He encourages everybody. He's bringing people together and networking and connecting and mediating and all kinds of things. And Barnabas was so strong about his opinion that he and Paul split. Barnabas and John Mark went on to Cyprus. Paul and Silas went on that second missionary journey back to the places where Paul had been before. So they had split ways in this very famous split between two key people in the New Testament, Paul and Barnabas. But then you pick up Barnabas, are you ready? You pick up uh, Mark again. In, in, you take your Bibles, if you wouldn't mind, and turn with me to Colossians. This is page uh, 1935. Colossians 4, verse 10. And Paul is writing from prison in Rome. He's in Rome, writing from prison to the Colossians. And he says in verse 10, my fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings. Look at this. As does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. So uh, Mark had, was in Rome, obviously, had reconnected with Paul and was there with him. And Paul obviously valued him. Turn on over to Second Timothy. This is page 1967. 
Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. This will be the last chapter Paul wrote in his life. This is his second imprisonment in Rome, after which we believe uh, he was beheaded. So Paul knows that he's facing the end. He says so. My time is coming to an end. I've finished the fight, fought the faith, uh, fought the fight, finished the race, and so on. And now there's stored up for me a crown of righteousness. Now he's writing from prison. This is his last letter before his, his beheading. And look what he says in verse 9. Do your best, he says to Timothy, to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Luke says, thanks a lot, Paul. Uh, only Luke is with me. Look at this. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Wow. These two guys who had split up for good reasons, they had a sharp dispute, says Acts. They circle back around. Guys, you know, don't ever write off a relationship. You know, when you split off with somebody or you go different ways in your business, don't ever write off a relationship. You're friends. You're brothers if you're in Christ. And oftentimes you'll find that people circle back around and learn how to appreciate each other, how to partner with each other, and how to benefit from each other. It may not be in the same way as before, but in a different way. And it can be very, very valuable. So 20 years later, here's the Apostle Paul asking for one thing, one companion, Mark. Turn on over uh, in your Bibles to First uh, Peter. Uh, that's Hebrews, James. Uh, get to Peter, First Peter five. This is page two thousand twenty-four. And this is Peter now, and he says in verse thirteen, "She who is in Babylon," which was code word for Rome. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. And so does my son, Mark. All right? So this gives you some idea of who John Mark was. He, he obviously appears to have grown up in Jerusalem, would have been familiar with the historical events of Jesus, but not part of that original discipleship group. But he eventually gets close to Barnabas, his cousin, he gets close to the Apostle Paul, and he particularly gets close to Peter if tradition is correct. And, of course, First Peter 5 suggests that it is, so that he was, as they say, Peter's interpreter. Now, another reason that we can see Mark's handiwork in Mark's gospel is that he, uh, he seems to mention Peter in places where Matthew and Luke or John might say the disciples said, Mark will say, Peter said, <laughs> Or he'll point out Peter. So you get a little bit more of Peter in Mark's gospel. That's another highly suggestive thing about uh, Mark's uh, authorship. Now, who is the audience? Who is Mark writing to? And what's their situation? Why is he writing them? Well, it seems that Mark, most people, well, there are several theories about who Mark could be writing. Some say he was writing to the church in Antioch, you know, which was the, the real missionary station that sent off Paul and Barnabas into the rest of the world. Some say Alexandria. And those of you who, uh, uh, who are familiar with uh, Egypt may know that John Mark is the patron saint of Egypt. Some say he's writing to the church in Alexandria. Uh, but most will say Rome. And here's why. In Mark's Gospel, you will find several 
Latinisms. He will use Latin words in, in, in the original. Uh, he uh, seems to be speaking to people who are more in the Latin culture than they are in the Greek culture. He also, Mark will explain simple Jewish customs. For example, uh, turn in Mark over to chapter 7. You'll get an example of this. Uh, in Mark 7, he says, uh, chapter 7, verse 1, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of the, his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. And then look at this explanation, a parenthesis. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. Uh, and, and he explains all that. When, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Well, anybody from, anybody from Jerusalem, well, duh, you know. But if you grew up in Rome and you'd never been to Israel, well, that's helpful. Now I understand something about the Pharisees. Thank you, Mark, for explaining that. You'll find, you'll find two or three other instances like that where he explains things. He also translates uh, some Aramaic words for them. So that obviously the author of this account is speaking to a non-Jewish crowd, not as familiar with Aramaic or, or Hebrew or, or Jewish customs, and obviously speaking to a foreign crowd. And because of the Latinisms, it's obviously toward the West. And because of Mark's connection with Peter and Peter's presence in Rome, as well as Paul's, then most people see clearly here we're talking about a Roman audience. Let me tell you why else we believe we're speaking to a Roman audience. The date of this book is presumed to be somewhere between 64 A.D. and 70 A.D., and here's the reason. The book seems clearly to be written to people who are suffering. And you'll pick this up as we go through Mark's Gospel and you look at the sufferings of Jesus. That is not only about our atonement. It is encouragement to us to realize, yeah, you're suffering too. Well, let me tell you something. You aren't experiencing anything that Jesus hasn't already experienced. You're being persecuted. Oh, well, let me tell you, Jesus Christ was persecuted. And you'll see in these stories how the sufferings and the passion of Jesus Christ is identified with what the audience is going through. Now, in the 60s A.D., you may remember the emperor was a man named Nero. Nero actually had a fairly just government from about 54 A.D. until 59 A.D., and then things start to go south. They really go south when Rome is burning in, in the spring or summer of 64 A.D. And most people blamed Nero for that because he wanted to rid himself of some things and people in Rome. And uh, the reason was that many people who seemed to have official sanction were torching the buildings. But then when he came under political pressure, Nero had to have somebody to blame. And guess who he blamed? The Christians. These foreign worshipers of another god. They're the ones causing all this problem. And so when the Christians came under blame, then they started to get uh, thrown in the fire themselves, eaten by lions and all the rest. They, their very lives were in danger. So Peter is writing to people who are undergoing major trials. Now, gentlemen, I'm, I know you, everyone in this room has trials. Every one of us suffers. And some of you are, have even faced some persecutions in life because of your religious convictions. 
Well, let me tell you something. This book is going to understand you. It's written to you, to the West, to those who would be suffering in Rome. So we'll see a lot of parallels then between what Jesus is going through and what these Roman Christians were going through. Now, let's talk for just a moment about the basic outline of, of Mark. It's very interesting. You, you can take Mark and just almost divide it in half. And the half will come right where Peter in Caesarea Philippi in chapter 8 makes his high confession, you are the Messiah. Because the whole first half of Mark is to convince us of who this person, Jesus of Nazareth, actually is. And gentlemen, I would say to you, the most important thing in your life is what you think of this man, Jesus. You may have come here thinking, well, you know, I've got a lot of important things to do today, and I've got, you know, got a college tuition to pay, and a kid getting to school, and I've got you know, bills to pay at home, and a wife that doesn't really like me very much, got to go figure out how to get her some flowers today, and all these problems. No, listen, number one thing in your life, is your relationship with God. And, of course, that's why we're all here. We're here to study the Bible, learn some more about the Bible together, and I'm quite convinced if you hang with us uh, through these months, you're going to know your Bible better, and we want you to do that. We want you to know Mark's gospel better. But, you know, the most important thing is we want you to know him better. And every single person here is a candidate unless you're perfect. Uh, if you're perfect, then you, don't, you won't need our help. But if, if you're imperfect, and some of you, I know well as know you're really imperfect. You need lots of help. That's what we want you to have is the help of God. We want you to know Him. And the way you're going to know Him is to come to know His Son, Jesus Christ. So the first half of Mark, Mark is presenting to us the number one issue in a man's life. Who is this Jesus Christ? And you'll find that question resonating through the first chapters. Who is this? When Jesus calms the waves and stills the storm, the disciples who took him in the boat just as he was, thinking he was a teacher from Nazareth. And that's all he was. Took him in the boat as he was. By the end of that lesson, they're saying, who is this? The storm had originally caused their fear. Now they had a storm in their heart for fear of Jesus Christ, who is more powerful than the storm. So they're learning who Jesus is ever so slowly. But they don't understand. Jesus says over and over again in the first chapters of Mark, do you not understand? Do you not understand? Do you not understand? Finally, you get to Peter. You're the Christ. Ah, you understand. Then you have the transfiguration. And then in chapters 9, 10, 11, Jesus is beginning to move toward Judea and Jerusalem. So the first half is up in Galilee where Jesus displays himself for who he is. Second half of Mark, roughly following that high confession in chapter 8, you had what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary in the resurrection. But throughout it all, gentlemen, what Mark is trying to get us to see is what difference it makes in our lives and what are we supposed to do about it. So first of all, let's find out who he is and what he's done. Let's explore the mysteries of his person and his power and his character. And then let's explore what difference does this make to me and what do I do about it. And that's the reason that we're all here. Well, let's take a look at this first, these first three verses, and I'm going to suggest that what these first three verses are teaching us is to wake up. The coming of Jesus is good news for the world. The reason I say this is that you'll notice that Mark doesn't begin like Luke or Matthew. You know, Matthew begins with genealogy. Luke begins with the birth narrative, the whole story of, you know, Bethlehem and the birth and the ending with a childhood at the end of chapter 2. Mark doesn't do any of that. John begins with this glorious prologue that's just musical in its quality, like an overture to a symphony. 
Mark doesn't begin any of that. Mark just smacks you right in the face. And that's exactly what he means to do. It's a wake-up call. Uh, in reading N.T. Wright's comment on this chapter, he says, it's like you're asleep in the middle of the night and, or in the early morning, like 5 o'clock in the morning. Someone bursts through the door and says, wake up! Get going! And rattles you and it takes a big bucket of water and throws it in your face. <laughs> you know what that feels like? You're going, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> And Mark is saying, wake up. Which presumes, of course, that we're asleep. And he's saying to the church, wake up. Here, this is something that's huge. That you've got to do. You've got to see. You've got to observe it. You've got to get into it. Get up. That's what's being said to the, to the, the church and to the world of today. So it's good news for the world. Now, what is this good news? First of all, I want us to notice the good news is good news. <laughs> it is. It's good news. Now, there are two ways in which we ought to see this. Number one, let's talk about the way it would be seen by a Roman pagan. And when I say the word good news, and then let's, let's talk for a moment about what, what it would have meant to those with a Jewish background. First of all, to a Roman pagan, if I said good news and the word is gospel or good news, uh, evangel is closer to the Greek word euangelion. EU means good, EU. And uh, angelos means messenger or message. So EU angelion, uh, evangel means good news or the gospel. And what it meant to a Roman was this. When the Caesar was born or when he ascended to his throne, it would be, there would be an announcement of good news. When Augustus was born, Caesar Augustus was born, there's an inscription that says, the beginning of good news, the king is born. So that's what it would have meant. It would have been this huge announcement of something very, very important for the world. And Mark is playing on that. Here the emperor. Here he is. This is the beginning of good news. And secondly, in the scriptures, leave your finger there in Mark chapter 1 and turn over to Isaiah 52 and you'll see the biblical Old Testament meaning going back 800 years that would have been also in Mark's mind, in the, in the mind of Jewish believers. In, Mar, in Isaiah 52, uh, beginning with verse 5, God recounts what's happened to his people. And he says, and now what do I have here, declares the Lord, for my people have been taken away for nothing. And those who rule them mock, declares the Lord. Uh, or back up to verse 4. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. At first, my people went down to Egypt to live. Lately, Assyria has oppressed them. So he's saying, let's just think a minute, God says, about my dear people. What's been happening to them? Number one, they go down to Egypt to be slaves. Well, then they come into the promised land. Then what happens to them? The Assyrians come down and take the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. and they're gone. And then this is being written after the Babylonians had come in 586 B.C. and taken the southern kingdom. And God goes on to say, for my people, verse 5, have been taken away for nothing. And those who rule them mock, declares the Lord, all day long my name is constantly blasphemed. Therefore my people will know my name and so on. He says, these people, these foreigners come in, rape and pillage and destroy. And then they say, who's that God you got? He's not very good, is he? Look, we took you. You think your God's better than our God? And he says, my name has been mocked over and over again. So God's recounting history. But then look in verse 6. He says, therefore, my people will know my name. Therefore, in that day, they will know that it is I who foretold it. Yes, it is I. He's basically building up now to it. He's saying, 
When deliverance comes, they're going to know that it was Jehovah that delivered them and they're going to give glory to my name. Then look at verse seven. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. There's the gospel. Who proclaim peace? Who bring good tidings? Who proclaim salvation? Who say to Zion, your God reigns? So here's the good news. After all that's been happening to you, after all the destruction that's taken place from all these foreigners, your God is going to come and rescue you. And the good news, you're going to hear the messenger say, our God reigns. He's in charge. He has restored his people. There's good news. Mark is saying, it's happening, boys. <laughs> this is it. Wake up. This is a big day. And most of the world just goes about their business. They don't even know what's happened. That the good news has begun. So that's what it means. That's the reason it's good news. Now, notice, secondly, the good news is about Jesus. He says the beginning of the gospel about. So this is good news about someone. You say you thought he would say in the beginning, the beginning of the gospel about God. But he's very specific. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the son of God. Gentlemen, you may get tired of the J word every once in a while. You may think, well, why can't these Christians just get along with all other kinds of religious people? You know, we all believe in God. Why can't we just use the, the name God and everybody will just get along together? Fine. You know, if you just pray one of those generic prayers and leave out the name of Jesus, then everybody can kind of come together and pray together and we can have society together and all the rest. Mark's not playing that game. He's saying, look, if you want to know God, you've got to know His Son because His Son is the perfect expression of God, as John says it in John chapter 1. So that if you don't know the Son, you really haven't seen the Father yet. Because the Son is the complete revelation of the Father. That's the reason Mark here is saying, and this is very interesting, because when you get to his quote from Isaiah, where he says, prepare the way for the Lord, the name Yahweh, prepare the way for Yahweh. Who is Yahweh? Say, this gospel is about Jesus Christ. So the connection between, I mean, right from the first verse, the exaltation that's being given to Jesus Christ is is without doubt. It reminds me of a, a, an interesting thing that happened last spring, and I'm sure this happens every spring in different high schools around the country, but a little girl named Brittany McComb in Henderson, uh, Nebraska, who graduated from high school as the valedictorian of her class. And uh, she is a strong believer in Christ. And so everybody was kind of suspicious that when she gives her valedictory address, She's going to go to evangelizing again. And so the assistant principal went to her before the address and said, Honey, now, uh, let's, let's see your speech. She showed it to him. He said, Now, if you'll take, take out this expression, that expression, he just cleaned it up so that Jesus wasn't mentioned once in that text. He said, Now, that'll be fine if you just, just give it just like that. Well, graduation day came, and she got up and she said, I, You know, I want to just say how much uh, God means to me. And, of course, God sent his one and only son. <laughs> and they cut the microphone off. They just flat cut her off. So, of course, now she's suing their pants off, uh, <laughs> which they deserve. And it's not for money, but to make the point. You know, high schools can't do that. It's a, it's a restriction of free speech. Uh, but people don't want to hear the name. They don't. And, and we can maybe talk about that through this year. What is it that's so offensive about the name of Jesus? It's probably us guys who are offending everybody, the people who belong to Jesus. We understand that. But there is something really offensive about it. But when you get to Mark, he's saying, look, I want to tell you the good news. And it, this good news is about Jesus. It's about Jesus Christ. The name Jesus means Jehovah saves. 
So in his very name, it has to do with salvation, which means that we need help. And that's offensive, I guess, that we're sinners and in need of help. The very name of Jesus suggests that. You remember the angel said to uh, the angel Gabriel said to uh, Joseph, you shall give him the name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The name Christ means anointed. Messiah is Christ. Christos in the Greek is the translation for Messiah in the Hebrew, Mishiach. And the anointed, the anointing was given to three officers, prophets, priests, and kings. So that's exactly who Jesus Christ is. You can think of him in those three offices. He's the ultimate prophet. That is, he speaks the truth of God to us. He's the ultimate priest. That is, he's the one that brings us near to God, which is the job of a priest. And, of course, in this case, he did it through his own blood. He's also a king. He rules over us. So you can't say about Jesus, you know, he's got some really interesting and helpful things to say. I've gotten some great advice from Jesus. He's going to be the prophet of my life. I just don't like this priest stuff, you know, all the blood and guts. I don't think I need to be drawn any nearer to God, but I appreciate the truth he's given me. You can't do that because he is prophet and priest. You can't say, you know, this priestly stuff I really appreciate. It's just so helpful to me to know that my sins are forgiven and that, that he's praying for me like a good priest, interceding for me constantly. But this king stuff, I just don't want anybody ruling over me. You know, I don't want to call my own shots. Sorry. Jesus Christ is prophet, priest, and king. He's the Christ, the anointed one. And then notice this phrase, son of God. And there are several places in the scriptures you notice where this is mentioned in one sort of language or another. What's very interesting about this is you'll notice it comes up in the very first verse, son of God. And son of God could mean a man like Ezekiel, the prophet who was a son of God. It could mean a king who was a son of God. Caesar was known as son of God. Or it could mean something very peculiar about the divine nature of this one who is God of very God. Of course, that mystery comes out later. And that is exactly what Mark means. He is the Son of God, the the second person of the Trinity. But what you'll notice is it comes up in verse 1, and then it comes up again in chapter 1, 3, 5, 9, chapter 14. But chapter 15 is particularly interesting, 1539. Because there you have Jesus dying on the cross in such a way that just, boggles the mind of the Roman soldier who's watching this whole thing happen. And at the end of it, he says, surely that is the Son of God. Wow. From the lips of a Roman soldier writing to Christians in Rome who are suffering at the hands of Roman soldiers to remind those Christians in Rome to whom he's writing, let me tell you something. Even Roman centurions get it every once in a while. Don't give up on them. Don't you write anybody off in your life because you think their heart is so hard. They're so committed to another religion. They care nothing about this. They're so brutal. Da, 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 da. Blah, blah, blah. When you get to the end of it, oftentimes you'll have the person you least expect say, surely that is the Son of God. So Mark is showing us not only does bullheaded Peter... The Jewish disciple get it and say, you're the Christ in chapter 8. But the Roman centurion in chapter 15 says, surely that is the Son of God. So you have two major professions of faith in Mark as a result of this. Now, let's go on to verses 4 through 11. And you'll see here that I'm saying that Mark is saying, straighten up. The coming of Jesus demands our response. So 
when Jesus comes on the scene. And by the way, I'm sorry, I skipped C and D. Uh, Let me go back there just a moment. The good news was long awaited. So it is good news, but it was long predicted and long awaited. And I'm not going to go into an analysis of that uh, quotation, although I'll just say this. It's, It's a merging of verses from Malachi, Exodus and Isaiah. And Mark just uses shorthand and says from Isaiah. And then he merges a saying from three places. But obviously, this is going to be a fulfillment of something that was predicted a long time ago, which, of course, adds validity to the whole event. And then D, uh, that I also skipped there, the good news has just begun because he says this is the beginning of the gospel. And, gentlemen, that was just the beginning. The best is yet to be the good news of the gospel. and We'll see it one day soon. Now let's go on to this second part, verses 4 through 11, where he says, straighten up. The coming of Jesus demands our response. What kind of response? Well, first of all, we're told that John came preaching uh, a baptism of repentance. He preached repentance. Now, what does this mean? Let's look, first of all, at the circumstances. You have the word baptizing, desert, and repentance. Now, what does this remind us of? Well, the, the word wilderness is a key word here. Uh, well, you see it three times in this short text that we're looking at. It's a key concept. Why is this so important? Because John is going back out into the wilderness where God had taken his own children out of Exodus. Remember, they were in the wilderness for 40 years, 40 plus years. And they were out there. They were tested. In order to get into the wilderness, they had to go through a body of water, didn't they? Called the Red Sea. And that is the defining moment, even to this day, for a Jewish person. We were brought, you know, by the Passover, we were brought through the Red Sea and brought to Mount Sinai and brought into the Promised Land. That whole Exodus history is, even to this day, inscribed into the mind of a Jewish person. It should be inscribed in the mind of a Christian person as well. And that's what John is doing. He's saying, okay, let's go back out in the wilderness. Let's do this right. Because when we went out in the wilderness last time for those 40 years, the reason we were there 40 years is because we were disobedient. We complained and we grumbled. We tried to commit mutiny against Moses. We did all kinds of evil things. We, we were seduced by the Moabites. We, we killed the wrong people. We killed each other. We, we were awful. We made a golden calf for heaven's sakes. And so let's go out here and do it right. And John says, all right, everybody back out to the wilderness. Coming through the waters of baptism. Coming through the Red Sea again, as it were. Being cleansed by the Lord, redeemed by Him. And let's go back out in the wilderness and hear the message. Repent. Now, if, we, if you studied the minor prophets with us last year, you know this is not hard to understand. The prophet said it over and over and over again to Israel. You've got to change. Turn from your false gods, from your selfishness, your greed and avarice, your sexual addictions. Turn from that and turn to the living God who will satisfy your heart. So John the Baptist comes as the last Old Testament prophet, and he's basically saying, here's the message. The good news is, God reigns. He's sending His Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Emperor, to come and rule. you got to get ready for Him. Gentlemen, it's the same message today. He's coming back, and when He comes back the second time, He's gathering all of His people up to establish forever His kingdom in heaven. Let's get ready for Him. It's a message of repentance. Turn to Him. Turn away from what you're doing now. Turn to Him. Then look at John's behavior. You'll notice the camel hair in the leather belt. He's not talking about a nice camel hair sport coat with a nice brown leather belt to go with it. 
He's talking about weird clothing. Real camel skin. The guy looks like a nut in a fruitcake. Why? Who's he identifying with? Second King chapter 1, you'll find Elijah did the same thing. When Ahaziah had people come to him and say, you know, there's a man out there that says you ought to repent. In fact, he says, because of what you've done, you're going to die. You're never going to get out of bed. Ahaziah says, what was that man like? He says, my name is Roy D. Mercer. How big a boy is that? He actually didn't say how big a boy he was. He said, what kind of man is he? And the, and the people said, well, he had camel hair and a leather belt. He says, that's Elijah the Tishbite. And that's exactly what John the Baptist is doing. He's fulfilling the prophecy of Malachi, the last lesson we studied last spring. That here is going to come, you know, Elijah will come. And John the Baptist is fulfilling that role and dressing like Elijah and making the announcement, this is the big day, boys. We've been waiting for it 400 years since we heard from Malachi. We hadn't heard a word from a prophet, uh, the infallible word of God, for 400 years. Think about it. Go all the way back to the pilgrims coming to the Plymouth Rock in 1620. We hadn't heard a word since then. Boy, these people were starving for a word from God. And here now the prophet gives it to them. And he's dressed in this strange way. You may have expected him to be in regal attire and lifted up on a throne and be a very wealthy and influential person. But no, he's some weird guy out there wearing camel's hair and a leather belt. And look what he's eating. Wild locusts. And, and wild honey and locusts. Oh, great. Fried grasshoppers. Wonderful. What is this nut? Well, he's countercultural. You're supposed to go in your camel hair sport coat and your nice leather belt, eating your steaks or your whatever you eat, and you're supposed to be just as radical. So now we come to John, who first of all says we must repent and get this countercultural message. And then he says you've got to believe in Jesus. And he points to Jesus Christ. And notice how he does it. First of all, he says, I'm not worthy. He says, after me, one will come more powerful than I. I'm not worthy to untie his shoelaces. The dirtiest part of a man's body, I'm not even worthy to touch that. Because I baptize with water, but he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So we dethrone ourselves and we enthrone Christ. And those two motions go together. If you want to know Jesus Christ, you're going to have to humble yourself. You cannot stand up on all of your pride and all of your dignity, defending yourself, vindicating yourself, promoting yourself, and get to know Jesus Christ. It won't work because He's the King. He's the Lord. He's the Son of God. And if you're going to know Him, you're going to be on your face before Him. So just a warning. And maybe that's the reason the J word is so offensive. Because it immediately humbles us. It did to John the Baptist. Jesus said about John the Baptist, this is the greatest man who ever lived. But then he says about those who follow him, but the least in the kingdom is greater than he. John only pointed, but we now follow, which makes everyone here who follows Christ a greater man in that sense than even John the Baptist was. But the greatest man of his time bowed before Jesus Christ. And notice what we're told about Christ. First of all, he comes from Nazareth. You will notice that everybody from Judea and Jerusalem, huge crowds came out there. They said basically emptied the entire city. It's like everybody from Memphis goes across the river and goes out there into Arkansas fields. The whole city just empties. 
And John's calling upon everybody to come out and be baptized and repent. And not one Memphian does so. And some guy from Macomb, Mississippi, walks up and he gets the baptism. (laughs) Here's the deal. Nobody from Judea or Jerusalem, all the people who consider themselves the real believers, the real good people. But here's a redneck from Nazareth. Galilee was nothing. It was people who had, you know, we weren't even sure about their bloodlines. And here's this nobody from Nazareth who comes up to be the Christ. Once again, the, the, the Lord turns things on, on its head. He comes from Nazareth and he's baptized by John, you notice. And the question we all have to ask ourselves, why was he baptized by John? He didn't need to be baptized. He didn't need to repent. He's perfect. He's the son of God. Why did Jesus get baptized? Well, there's several theories. Probably the most common is this. Jesus was baptized because he was the perfect Israelite. He was the perfect son of God who did exactly what we should be doing, going through the waters of the Red Sea, going out into the wilderness and obeying our Father perfectly. And Jesus is completely identifying with us. And if that was a baptism of repentance, he simply is already foreshadowing the fact he's going to take our sins upon himself. And as Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, he was born of a woman and born under the law to redeem those of us who were under the curse of the law. So Jesus is identifying with us to deliver us from the penalty of the sins we had committed. And then while he's there, look what happens to him in verse 11 or verse uh, 10 and 11 as he was coming out of the water. And in verse 10, by the way, that little word as is far more powerful than you would notice in the IV. It says literally uh, immediately as Jesus was coming out of the water. And this word immediately, you notice in your footnotes here, used 42 times in Mark's gospel. It, it, this is a man's gospel. It's moving very fast. Immediately, immediately, immediately. And it's also the shortest one in the book. So we like this one, don't we? I mean, my wife says, I can't get to the bottom line ever fast enough to suit you, you know? I'm always going, please, give me that. I'm dying. Please. I can't listen anymore. I'm exhausted. Please give me the bottom line. And here, Mark is giving us the bottom line. Yeah, immediately this, immediately that, so you're in. This is obviously written by a man to men. But here in chapter, chapter 1, verse 10, you have immediately Jesus was coming out of the water. And look, he saw heaven. Now, this is obviously also written by a man because Matthew and Luke just say heaven opened. That's not what Mark says. Mark says, heaven was ripped open. It was torn open. It was ruptured. And he doesn't mean there was a big crack in the sky. What he means is that in this moment, heaven came to visit earth. And maybe some of you have had moments like this where all of a sudden you saw things from a different perspective. You saw it from God's perspective. You, it was really like you just got your head in the heavenlies for a moment. And exactly that is what men ought to do. Have your feet firmly on the ground, your head in the heavens, and your hands firmly on the plow. That's the way you live life. Here the heavens are open. Reality is now going to dawn upon us in a powerful way. And what is the reality? The Holy Spirit comes upon the true Israelites. The Holy Spirit later comes upon the church. But now it comes upon Jesus without measure, we're told in other places. Without measure, the Spirit of God fills the life of Jesus. Now filled, Jesus hears a voice, and so do others around Him, that says, This is My Son. With Him I am well pleased. 
Gentlemen, if there was one thing humanly I could do for every single one of you, it would be to take you back to those years of four, five, and six with your dad and for you to hear that over and over again. Son, you are my son. That will never change. And I love you. And with you, I am very well pleased. And if I could take all of you back, every single one of you, that's the one thing I'd want you to hear, humanly speaking, over and over again from your father. Because if there's one thing you can learn from John Eldridge's book, um, Wild at Heart, it is this. Most of male problems come because we're trying to find ways to make up for the fact that our dads usually didn't tell us that. It's either by trying to acquire property or acquire money or prestige or fancy cars or a lot of women or drugs to anesthetize ourselves. Some way to deal with the fact that we don't think that we're well loved, nor do we think that we were very well pleased our fathers. But here is what we're learning from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The number one person to whom you need to look to know that you're well, that you please him and delight him. The number one person that you need to know that who loves you and will never let you go is God, the father himself. And you need to hear that voice over and over again. And before Jesus ever began his incredible ministry of three years, ending on a cross in an empty grave, he heard the voice of his father. This is my son. I love him. With him, I'm well pleased. And you know what? You can hear that, too. And why don't we stop making excuses about, well, you know, my mama said this to me, my daddy said this to me, I can't get over this, can't get over that. Look, there's a God in heaven, and He offers to be your Father through the Lord Jesus Christ, His one and only Son. And you can hear that voice, and you can be a new man, because you now know that you are cherished, loved, valued, and you please the most important Father in the universe, the one who made it all and made you. That's what we're finding here in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then from there... We find in the last section, verses 12 and 13, that we need to cheer up because the coming of Jesus redeems our sufferings. Oh, this is so important because we are all suffering. And we find here in verses 12 and 13 something very important. Jesus now filled with the Spirit. Look what happens. He is sent by the Spirit into the wilderness. Why is wilderness so important? Because, gentlemen... In Rome, by this time, the only place the Christians could worship without being put to death were in the catacombs. How many here have been to the catacombs? A few of you have been to the catacombs in Rome. They're down below ground. They're caves where you bury dead people. Nobody wants to go there where the dead people are. So that's where the Christians went to worship. You wonder why when you go to St. Peter's Basilica, in Rome or many other places around the world, you say, this church feels like a mausoleum. Dead people are everywhere. There are dead people buried in the basement, dead people buried in the chapels, dead people buried under the altars, dead people everywhere. Why did that even come to the mind of Christians? Because that's where they started worshiping in Rome, was in the catacombs with dead people. And so they're in the wilderness. And notice what Mark is saying to them. Would you please notice this? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God Himself, sent Jesus into the wilderness. Don't you think maybe He sent you into the wilderness? And maybe there's a purpose to all this. So He's sent there by the Spirit into the wilderness. And then you notice, secondly, that He suffered. He was in the desert for 40 days. What does this recall? Of course, the 40 years of the Israelites. The 40 days of Moses on Mount Sinai. The 40 days of Elijah in the wilderness. And Jesus is finding that same experience, intentionally being sent by the Spirit to be in this wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan. 
So he goes out into the wilderness. If you've been into the Judean wilderness or the, the wilderness beyond Judea, you know there's nothing there but you and God and stones. If you've been out in Sinai, you especially know there's just nothing there. Some, there are some places you can go, there's just nothing but sand and rocks, dirt. And Jesus goes out to be with no one but God and Satan himself. And some of you feel that loneliness. There's no human being there to help you. It's only you and Satan. Now, when you look at the Markan text, you have to ask yourself, why are the three temptations not given? You know, Matthew and Luke, in a little bit different order, at least give the same three temptations. And we're told what they are and the conversations between Jesus and Satan. And Jesus quotes the Bible to Satan and wins a victory. Why did Mark, is Mark in such a hurry? Is he such a man? What's the bottom line? He doesn't want to tell us about the temptations. Well, if you look at verse 13, I think you see why. Because Mark has his own description. And here's his description. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. He was with the animals and the angels. Now, just a minute. Animals. This is the only place in the New Testament where anybody says that when Jesus went to the wilderness, he was with animals, wild animals. Why that? Some speculate, well, you know, if you look in Isaiah, when the great eschaton comes, the end of times, the wolf will lie down with the lamb, the child will crawl over the hole of the asp, and so on and so It kind of tames the wild animals when the end, uh, end times come. And here's Jesus already beginning the work of the new kingdom and so on. I don't think that's it. First of all, it's really simple. There were wild animals out there. You had Satan and you had some wild animals that could hurt you. So it was a dangerous place. Gentlemen, I believe the real reason that Mark mentions this is that just as the Romans were in their own wilderness in the catacombs, what would wild animals mean to them under Nero in Rome? Some of you have been to the Colosseum in Rome. When I went to the Colosseum, I could almost still hear the lions in their cages underneath the floors because my brothers and sisters, my fathers and mothers had stepped out on that very floor and they'd been eaten by the lions. These Roman Christians knew very well what wild animals meant. They were a terror. And Mark is saying, let me tell you something. You can't face a lion that Jesus didn't already face. You can't face a problem that he didn't already face. You can't face a threat or a terrorist that he hasn't already faced. The Spirit sent him out into the wilderness to understand you completely. And he faced the wild animals. And notice, secondly, that he was attended by angels. And I want to say to you, if you give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, yes, you too, by the Holy Spirit, will be sent intentionally into some very wild, wilderness-like places to face the wild animals. But you'll not go there by yourself. Oh yeah, people looking at you may think you're there by yourself. But you're not by yourself. Because God attends His people with His heavenly servants called angels. Sometimes they come in human form. Sometimes they're invisible to you. Sometimes they're in other forms. You don't even know what's happening. But I'm telling you what, the Lord has His hand upon you and He is protecting you. And so from the very beginning, Mark is saying, wake up. i got some great news for you. The emperor is being born. This has incredible implications for every one of us who are following him. Let's understand the power of this good news. Yes, we're going to be sent into this world to face all of its dangers, but we're not going to be sent alone. You will be attended by the servants, the fiery servants of the living God who will watch your way until it's time for the Lord to bring us home and to give us all the things that he had promised in the good news of the kingdom. That really is good news. 
And it ought to change our lives as we go out of here because now we have a heavenly perspective. Now we're going to repent and believe in Jesus Christ and follow him even through the wilderness because there are angels all about us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this text and pray that we may live it out with believing hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.